our new of our sermon series called Work. And this is a super awesome series that we've been doing where we've been examining this subject of work. What, when we think about work, uh, studies show that we're going to spend 90,000, maybe 90,000 plus hours at work. We're going to spend one third of our lives at our occupation, whether that's staying at home uh, with the kids or, or holding part-time jobs or, or full-time careers. Uh, a place where we spend a majority of our time is at work. But if we're honest with ourselves, we sometimes live this misguided, compartmentalized lives that separate secular work from spiritual life or, or spiritual work. Sometimes we think that, that the spiritual life, the sacred life is what we're doing right now. It's those moments when we open up the scriptures and read the Bible. It's the moments where we get the Holy Ghost goosebumps because we like the bridge. It's the moments when the volume is up and we're with God and it's very evident that the stuff we're doing is godly. And so we consider that spiritual. But when we consider our work, we sometimes think it's maybe more secular or non-spiritual because maybe it's not uh, some sort of ministry title. Uh, during the Reformation, there was a period where being in ministry, uh, a priest, or being, uh, having a religious occupation was held in such high esteem because uh, the, the, the day and age favored Christianity through Constantine's rule. And Martin Luther comes along and begins to completely flip this idea upside down with his theology of vocation, saying that, that there's no distinction, that, that the work that you're doing, tilling the field, raising the kids, cooking and cleaning is just as sacred and as important as the work of ministry that we're more familiar as categorizing as spiritual. And yet, if we're honest, there's this sizable gap a huge chasm between what's happening here on Sunday and Monday. And what we believe about the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, is that it doesn't just individually change us and transform us, it changes everything. That God's purpose and plan is to make all things new. All that was lost to sin, distorted by sin, tainted by sin, robbed of sin, Jesus is renewing, making new, reinfusing purpose and passion into it. And that includes our work. So where our work was maybe, and maybe it still feels this way, a place of curse, destruction, chaos, a place where it doesn't feel like we can encounter God. The good news of the kingdom of God is that in Christ, it can become holy ground. A place where we have these incredible encounters with King Jesus, where we live on mission and advance his kingdom. So What does it look like, in the words of Tom Nelson, to live a seamless faith that connects Sunday faith with Monday work? Or as missiologist Leslie Newbigin says, to live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. What does it look like to live in such a way where we connect our Sunday faith to our Monday work and we live in such a way that provokes questions from our neighbors, from our coworkers, from the people around us for which the gospel is the answer. How do we live this way? What does that look like on the ground? This can take many forms and fashions, but I believe it begins with following and pursuing obedience to the greatest commandment. And with that, let's look at Matthew chapter 22, 
verse 34 through 40. Uh, if you need a Bible, I want to invite you to shoot up your hands super quickly. And uh, uh, my man Josh is going to put a Bible uh, in your hand. Uh, that is our gift to you. You can keep it, write your name in it, put your phone number in it, uh, take it everywhere you go. Uh, when I first became a Christian in 2011, and I bought my first Bible at a Christian bookstore, uh, I will say I did overpay for that thing because uh, uh, I was like, man, I got to get my name engraved in this. And I was like, man, 60 bucks for the word of God. Oh, there's no price. I won't pay for the word of God. Uh, and I was so in love with the scriptures. I, uh, and it's just falling apart. I can't even hold it anymore, my, my first Bible. And I was so passionate about the word of God that when I went back home for uh, a summer in, in, in between school semesters, uh, I had a job interview at Walgreens. And I walked into Walgreens, and I knew that Christians conducted themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel and were held above reproach. So I, I put on a tie, and I took my Bible to my job interview, and I set it on the table, and the interviewer never asked me about the Bible. So, uh, but I was so passionate about carrying the Word of God because it had done such an amazing transformative work in my life. And I want to encourage you, church, that when we hold the Word of God, it's no light thing that we're holding the words that God has spoken to us and we can experience transformation from gazing into this word. And so with that, I wanna invite you to open up those pages. Pull out your phone. Look at this word with me. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 through 40. Let's read it again. But when the Pharisees heard, they had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked them a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we get to gather together to worship you, to seek you. Uh, it's no thing we take lightly. We praise you for the provisions that have uh, enabled us to do this. Uh, Lord, thank you for our kids' church and our, all of our awesome volunteers there. Thank you, Lord, for our worship team and our media team and our hospitality team. Lord, thank you for uh, your hand over every single moving part so that we can come and fellowship and receive your word. I, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open up our heart. Would you prepare our heart to be good soil? As Jesus says, would, would you let seed, uh, would it be a, a place where seed will fall and it will not be robbed away by the anxieties that we brought in? It won't be stripped away by the enemy. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would allow this word to take root in our hearts and yield an abundant harvest. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. But when the Pharisees heard... They'd silence the Sadducees. That's a, a group of religious elite who had subscribed to a very specific version of Judaism. They gathered together. What we see here is that the way of Jesus uh, has the power to unite us under the banner of the blood and his cross, or as we see here, two enemies coming together to distinguish, to, to, to stop the move of Jesus, Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, uh, religious uh, enemies because they disagree theologically about resurrection and other fundamental issues, but they gather together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. 
Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So, so what is happening in this portion of Scripture? Where we find Jesus in this portion of Scripture is in a very familiar place for, for Jewish leaders and students of the law. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it was not uncommon for religious Jewish leaders to fight and debate over interpretations of Scriptures and views of God. It was a very common practice. And one question that would often come up is something like this. What is the greatest, what, which is the most important commandment out of all the commandments? We know that God gave 613 commandments delivered through Moses, and, and we're really familiar with, with the first 10, or I've, I've heard them in some sort of capacity. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, you shall not make idols. Uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord God in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Number five, honor your father and mother and all the parents with disruptive toddlers said, just get it already. Amen. Yeah, yeah. My life, my confession. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. Number 10. And there would be these frequent debates. Is it one of these? Is one of these the, the most important? Or is it one of the other 633 remaining that we often gloss over in the Old Testament? The lawyer would have been the expert in the law. Would have been very familiar with all of the commandments. And he calls him out. He, he puts him on the spot. The moment is very similar to when you run into maybe a sports fan or, or, or a hobbyist and, and they claim to be the expert in the field, but you know that you're the expert. So you're like, really? Uh, tell me why you think the 1993 Cowboys is the greatest team of all time. And then you give your, your response. I'm a Cowboys fan. Not a good one, though, so don't ask me why I think that. Uh, it would have been that sort of moment. Tell me why you think this is the greatest player or this is the greatest movie or the greatest score composition. Uh, this lawyer was an expert, an authority in the scriptures, and he calls out Jesus and says, well, what do you think it is? Now, there's something that we should be reminded about Jesus in this moment uh, is that by trade, Jesus grew up a carpenter. And until he begins his ministry at the age of 30, does he have a career change and he commits to being a full-time rabbi, a teacher of the law, making disciples. That was what first century rabbis did. They made disciples. This wasn't new to Jesus. But what Jesus was doing different was he was doing so in a countercultural way. Uh, and this infuriated the religious elite because they were trying to preserve a way of life. In this day and age, there was a social hierarchy, and at the top with all the political and economic power were the religious elite who most benefited from this oppressive system. And what is Jesus doing by living the way that God has called us to live? He's dismantling the way of life that they were so radically committed to. And the question is, well, how were humans designed to live? Humans were designed to live unrestricted by sin and in union with God. That is what we see in the beginning. This union with the Godhead, perfect relationship that isn't restricted by sin. Genesis chapter three, sin comes and taints uh, this perfect relationship that humans have with God. And it also taints and severs and disrupts all relationships. 
And what Jesus is doing is living the way that you and I were designed to live in perfect union with the Godhead and unrestricted by sin. And in this ministry of Jesus, he's causing all sorts of divine dis- disruptions. The, the sick are being healed. The, the broken and the outcasts are being set in family. The, the dead are rising and the powerless and the poor are finding life in Jesus. Yet we know that Jesus was more than a rabbi. In fact, he was God in the flesh. But what his opponents see when they see this man is another person impersonating a teacher. Another person impersonating a rabbi, trying to garner up power and cause revolts and revolutions. And so what are they saying? If you're really a teacher, if you're really a rabbi, tell us what the most important commandment is. Now, what's interesting in this moment is that they're not asking Jesus this question to arrive at some theological truth. They're asking Jesus this question to create division among the Pharisees and Sadducees and create some sort of disruption, trying to find a reason to disqualify Jesus from his ministry. And how does Jesus respond? Let's look at verse 37 through 39. And he said to them, to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What is Jesus saying here? He's quoting a very familiar scripture. He's quoting, in fact, a very familiar prayer that Jewish boys and girls, men and women, would recite every single morning and every single evening. And it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 5. It's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Shema, uh, Hebrew word meaning hear, listen. Hear, O Israel. And what's so important about this prayer and the reason why they recited it every morning is because it recalibrated the human heart to remember and emphasize this truth that God is one and that there is no one like him. And it reminded the human heart that has a propensity to love and pursue other things to love God exclusively. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. New Testament scholar Grant Osborne says this. Notice that it's not just love God, but love the Lord your God. The object is Yahweh, the personal, powerful God, the covenant God who never leaves or forsakes. Moreover, he is your God, so that one's love for him is simply the response of one who has already been loved completely and absolutely. Jesus says this is the first, this is the great commandment. You see, loving God is not only the greatest commandment. What Jesus informs us is that it's also the first commandment. So all that we say, all that we do, all that we think should be prioritized, centered around loving God. And the reason it's the greatest and the reason it's the first is because all other pursuits of obedience to God flows from it. He goes on to say, and a second is like it. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. Loving your neighbor flows out of love for God. Hear me. Loving your neighbor does not flow out of discovering how to truly love yourself. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this. And I, I, I've even said this early on that, you know, I just can't love others until I learn how to love God. And I always want to say it's, it, it's just not that complicated. If you want to learn how to love others, or if you want to learn how to love yourself, Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind and watch how the love of God begins to fill your soul and recalibrate your desires, recalibrate your mind, recalibrate your emotions in such a way that you're now freed by the love of God to truly love others and yourself the way God designed you to live. If we always start with the, the, the version of love that we want for ourselves, we'll never arrive at a satisfying place because it'll never be enough. Because you'll always find yourself discovering something about yourself that you don't like, that you're not satisfied with, that you want to change and transform. And the enemy will keep you so busy looking internally saying, okay, yeah, you, you, you got over that insecurity, but what about this one? You really think you can love that person when you have this thing going on? And the good news of the kingdom of God is that freedom and the capacity to love never comes inward. It comes outward, gazing upon the person of love. God is love and his love casts out all fear and frees us, enables us to love the way we're designed to. I believe all other forms of love start, start off maybe altruistic and selfless, but eventually they're motivated by some sort of condition. True love for yourself and for others flows from radical love for God and positioning yourself under the headwaters of God's love, the waterfall, and just receiving it, being overwhelmed with it. First John 4, 19 through 21 says it this way, we, we love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. If anyone says, I love God, but, but I don't really like that person because I don't like what they posted on Facebook or Instagram and they don't vote like me and look like me and I can't believe they, they said that thing. I, I hate that person. I, I, I want to remove myself from that person. Raises concern whether or not the unconditional love of God is at work in our heart. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. Rather, there's parts of our lives being exposed by the grace of God where we realize here's another place where God's love can take over all over again so that I can love selflessly the way he does. For he who does not love his brother whom he can, has not seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Listen to this quote by M.J. Wilkins, um, theologian. He says, love is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person in which one gives oneself to another to bring the relationship to God's intended purposes. The person who loves God with all her being, heart, soul, and mind will understand that God's will for her life is revealed in the Old Testament and she will gladly, eagerly obey it because she knows that in doing so, she is living the life the way God has designed it to be lived. 
In turn, her obedience to God's uh, will transform her entire being, heart, soul, and mind into the image of God so that she is more like the God, so she is more like what God has intended for her to be like. Furthermore, loving her neighbor as herself means that she gives herself to other humans to help them live as God designed life to be lived so that she helps them in their own transformation. These are the greatest commandments because they go to the essence of the way God has created humans to live, giving oneself to God and to others to fulfill his purposes for us as the crown of his creation in displaying our lives to the glory, in, 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 in displaying in our lives the glory of God's kingdom on earth. Jesus' inauguration of the kingdom enables this to be a concrete reality for his disciples. When Jesus arrives on the scene, and he begins to reverse the effects of sin, and he hangs on the cross and raises from the dead, he has enabled you to experience God's love and love others in a way uh, that would have been otherwise impossible, restricted by sin. But now that the power and the penalty and the presence of sin has been dealt with, you are now freed to enjoy this horizontal relationship of experiencing God's love and receiving his God's love that isn't dictated by whether or not you're lovable that has nothing to do with your performance or your inaccurate evaluation of yourself, that has nothing to do with what you did last night, how you arrived here this morning, or what you have planned or what's going to happen this week. It's this unconditional love that we're now recipients of because Jesus died to get, us, to get it inside of us, and he died to enable us to live by that love in such a way that we can love others into all that God has called them to be selflessly, unconditionally, and sacrificially. This has incredible implications here because hear me, the fruitfulness of your Christian life has less to do with how well you measure up and how good you're doing uh, the quote-unquote religious stuff, how, how good you're being a good person and following the rules. No, no, it has less to do with those things and more to do with how much you truly love God and how much of his love you've allowed to get inside of your heart, soul, and mind. You see, the scriptures make it abundantly clear that our problem is not simply misbehavior and doing the wrong things. Our primary problem is a worship disorder. We choose to love other things, other people, other stuff more than we love God. Instead of centering him and prioritizing him in our life, we take other things more into consideration than the one true God. The scriptures make it abundantly clear that, that this is called sin, and this mechanism of sin is inside the human heart, uh, and, and, and it restricts the human heart from loving the way God has called us to love and receiving love. And instead, we look for it in all the wrong places and people. So how are humans designed to live? Well, as we said earlier, humans were designed to live unrestricted by sin and in union with God. The good news of the kingdom of God is that all that was lost in the beginning is being, has been and is being restored and redeemed in Christ Jesus. That when we place our faith in Jesus, we connect to God in such a way that we can experience union with him as intended in the beginning and live our life geared, directed towards the face of God, 
unrestricted by sin, not dictated by our best efforts or our worst efforts. And and the good news of the kingdom of God is that the more we submit to Jesus, the more we follow Jesus, the more we will look like Jesus, and the more we will become our true self. Now, why does this matter? And what does it have to do with the subject of work? What does it have to do with how we're clocking in tomorrow morning or showing up to classes or parenting, walking into the office, in the shop? What does it have to do with the everyday stuff of life? Well, our work can become the primary place where we love God and we love others. Our work can be the primary place where we practice this great commandment of loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind and loving others as ourself. And we don't have to wait for a grand spiritual experience or a scheduled time on the calendar to live the way God has called us to live. When you are in the classroom and the teacher is lecturing, you can love God with all your heart, soul, and mind by saying, Lord, take this laptop and take this pen, and may I take notes that glorify you in such a way that you would be honored in this class by the way that I work. And Lord, let me not just take up another seat in this place, but would my presence be this light and provoke questions to which the gospel is the answer. Our work can be the place where we're not just walking through the hallway, but I believe like the apostle Peter, our shadow catches a sick person and all of a sudden there's no cough in their throat and they connect one thing to another and they said, yo, what's up with your shadow? I'm I'm praying for that. Uh, It can be the place where through our life we embody the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions to which the gospel is the answer. Our work can be the place where we practice loving God and loving others. It can be the place where you encounter people who are wildly different from you, yet their differences don't serve as barriers because the good news of the kingdom of God is that Jesus has died to remove all the barriers and we can experience connection and relationship with one another that isn't dictated by preferences. And you don't have to worry with how how people are treating you or loving you because you don't get your love from them, you get it from God. And so regardless if people fail you and you lose trust in them and they don't meet your expectation, thanks be to God that I don't need them to live the way God's called me to live. Everything that I will ever need is found in Christ Jesus and our work can be the place where we grow in believing that. You see, God has placed those people around you so that you can love them into all that God is calling them to be Because you've received and you're receiving the love of God and it's flowing through you and touching your neighbors. Work is the place where we can actively grow in loving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves. And what does this look like? I love this excerpt from an article uh, from theologyofwork.org. It says this, Jesus not only commands us to love others, but to love others as we love our own selves. And what does this look like in the workplace? It looks like, It looks like a cook double-checking the internal temperature of a hamburger after someone says, hey, does this look all right to you? Because that's what she would do if cooking the hamburger for herself. 
It looks like a sale clerk calling over a more experienced colleague when a customer asks a question he is not sure he knows the answer to, rather than giving an answer he thinks is right, because he would want that information himself before buying It looks like a mechanic stripping apart the brake job he just completed because he heard a strange noise, and that's what he would do before driving his own car. It looks like a businessman asking his colleagues, is it possible we're not taking her seriously enough because she's a woman, knowing that he would want a colleague to stand up for him when he's being misunderstood? You see, your work is not simply your occupation. It's not simply the place uh, where you clock in or if you're at home with the kids, just try to make it to bedtime or if you're a student just trying to get from class to class. No, it's much more than that. In the kingdom of God, your work is the place where you can have radical encounters with God and it's also your mission field. The place God has strategically placed you to love the people around you and to all that God has called them to be. And if you ask yourself the question, well, God, what are you calling my neighbors to be? That is God's gracious invitation to seek him in prayer and wait for him to reveal that to you. Your work is the place where God has placed you to reunite heaven and earth. Because why the kingdom of God is inside of you so much so that it's springing forth from you and you're graciously displaying a love that's so profound and so transformative that in and of itself, it invites others to taste and see how good God truly is. Your work is more than an occupation and a responsibility. It is your God-given assignment to love him and love others and to all that he's called them to be. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to make this a reality in our lives.